Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student. I've got uh, two students that were able to stay from our last podcast where we introduced the DSM evolution in terms of personality disorders. We're going to pick up on that again. Let's do brief introductions. Doug, do you want to start? Hey, I'm Doug Worthland. I'm a third year medical student. I want to be a psychiatrist. Anything else you want to know? I think you uh, did a pretty good introduction beyond the introduction beyond that and the other podcast. That sounds like a good start. And Quinn? I'm Quinn Gray, third year medical student. Going to do psychiatry. All right, guys. So let's talk a little bit about the, the cluster A personality disorders. Before we do, let's make sure that, uh, that we're working. Well, actually, normally what we do is kind of the high yield, like a shelf exam question sort of thing right here. Did either of you guys prepare some some things that we need to know to be able to answer the shelf exam questions? I didn't prepare any practice questions per se, uh -huh. but I guess after we address each of these three personality disorders, getting into... The nuances, yes. the differential, how you tell those apart. Yes. Excellent. So uh, I think what I'm going to say is if you want to hear the high yield stuff, put this on 2.0 speed and roll forward then. How does that sound? Cool. Yeah, I didn't... To be honest, prepare anything that's for the shelves. It's just, I talked about, I looked up stuff that I was interested with in different diagnoses, so. Works for me. All right, so what is a personality disorder then? Before I get into our current definition of personality disorder, I would like to go back a little bit to our last episode to just touch on, in 1968, DSM-2, we have this language of how a personality disorder was defined then as a deeply ingrained maladaptive pattern of behavior. And I think it's interesting to address that first and then to talk about our current definition being a personality disorder is an enduring pattern of inner experience and behavior that deviates markedly from the norms and expectations of the individual's culture, is pervasive and inflexible, has an onset in adolescence or early adulthood, is stable over time, and leads to distress or impairment. I like it. So now that we know what a personality disorder is, we have three clusters. Very brief review. We have cluster A, which is? The odd and eccentric cluster. Cluster B, which is? Dramatic, erratic. And cluster C. Anxious, fearful. Anxious, fearful. Excellent. Now, uh, talk about dimensional models for me, if you would. Yeah. Or categorical versus dimensional models. So the DSM, the way that it categorizes personality disorders is what they call this categorical model, wherein they have, sorry, I'm just going to read a couple sentences from the DSM here. Point towards the mic while you do, though, if you can. Can do. The, the diagnostic approach used in this manual represents the categorical perspective that personality disorders are qualitatively distinct clinical syndromes. But then here it offers a different way to, I guess, look at or categorize personality disorders. This is something that I'd never heard of before. I thought it was interesting. It says, an alternative to the categorical approach is the dimensional perspective, that personality disorders represent maladaptive variants of personality traits that merge imperceptibly into normality and into one another. So I think that if I understand correctly, the dimensional approach, you wouldn't say a patient has this categorical diagnosis, you would say the patient has 
this dimensional trait, this dimensional trait, and this dimensional trait, and the combination of those traits interfere with normal, uh, with what is described as norms and expectations of functioning in an, in an, and in and in individuals' culture. That is also how I understood it. I I feel like maybe if the DSM had chosen to do this dimensional model rather than the categorical model, and this is just the way that you know. I, I'm thinking about it, this could be wrong, but maybe they would have a list of, I don't know, 50 uh, criteria. And you could say this person meets this one, this one, this one, this one. And because you meet this many criteria, you meet, uh, I guess you meet the criteria for a personality disorder, but without being like a, yeah, a category. So like a mix and match. Mix and match, that's so how this, I think of it. This kind of gets into the, we were talking about Enneagrams um, earlier, or like personality tests. And to me, I don't know as much about this as I should probably. It seems like it could be compared to that. How would this be different than like doing an online <laughs> I'm a six on Enneagram test or something like that? I mean, I the way I think about it, I guess it... Maybe it could be thought of in a similar way. I'm this, I'm this. And if you were to do a dimensional approach, I'm this and this. But within the DSM, maybe more uh, pathological or maladaptive behaviors rather than what we define as... Um, your modus operandi, your way of working. Sure. I think a lot of the personality tests like the color code mm-hmm. um, and so forth speak to different traits that you have and then the mix of those traits kind of uh, builds a personality approach, perhaps. So I, I think it might be somewhat like what you're talking about. With what uh, Quinn said, I agree. The the caveat that this is maladaptive approaches or maladaptive traits that would lead to that. All right, with that in mind, I'm, I'm going to shift gear now from the theoretical to the three diagnoses that are in the cluster. Let's start off with paranoid personality disorder. Who's got that? I do. All right. All right. So first, how we'll how we'll move through these is kind of an overview statement of what each of these personality disorders are, or how they're how they're described, and then we'll go through their criteria, and then how we can distinguish them from other disorders while you're taking your shelf exam. So the overview of paranoid personality disorder is a pattern of distrust and suspiciousness, such that others' motives are interpreted as malevolent. So how does so when we talked about the personality disorders, this is an enduring pattern of pattern of inner experience. The inner experience is distrust and suspiciousness. Is that kind of what I'm hearing? Yes. And then um, the the um, disruption and function. How does that play out? Disruption and function plays out. As I, was, as I was reading about this paranoid personality disorder within the DSM, it's interesting to look at the relationships that these people have with other people. What does the DSM say about that? I'll read a few, a few lines. Individuals with this disorder assume that other people will exploit, harm, or deceive them, even if no evidence exists to support this expectation. Individuals with this disorder are reluctant to confide in or become close to others because they fear that the information they share will be used against them. 
Individuals with this disorder bear grudges and are unwilling to forgive. The distrust, hmm. the suspicion, I, I, I don't think it allows them to have really any form of close relationships with family, with friends, even if those other people want to pursue those relationships. All right, so if you had a shelf exam question that mentioned something along the lines of um, paranoid delusions, how is that different than a paranoid personality disorder? Well, um, when I think about this, the, the two most important things for me are duration and um, the where what the paranoia is directed towards. So with paranoid personality disorder, it's going to be towards relationships with people, and it's also going to be over a long period of time. And they kind of have to give you those two things to be able to, to distinguish it from paranoid delusions, which could be over a shorter period and then not having the delusions, or it could be, or you could look at things where they're paranoid about um, things that aren't like relationships with other people or that are just uh, bizarre and illogical. Can I comment to that as well? I would agree the, that you have to look for a pattern, like a lifelong pattern in a person with this paranoid personality disorder. I think in a question stem, what might be different is, for example, with a paranoid delusion, it might be somebody who is plugging holes in their wall with caulk because they feel like they're being spied on by the government. Whereas a person with a personality disorder is secluded. They don't have relationships because of the way they feel about other people. Everybody's out to get me. I don't trust anybody. Trust is different than a belief in something that seems unlikely. Although I can imagine a person with a personality disorder believing that they've been wronged by somebody because of their lack of trust. But it sounds like this is something that seems more unlikely, the, yes. the paranoid delusions. Yes. Okay. So I imagine in a clinical setting it might be kind of difficult to tease that out sometimes. Generally, in our shelf exam questions, though, it's going to be as simple as the trust in the relationship, perhaps. Yes. Okay. What about um, between schizoid personality disorder versus paranoid personality disorder? I think both of these patients would be isolated, would be secluded. And the difference is, I guess, the motivation in the seclusion. A schizoid person, a patient with personality excuse me, a patient with schizoid personality disorder would isolate themselves just because they don't have any desire for relationships. Whereas a paranoid, a patient with paranoid personality disorder would be distancing themselves from others because of the distrust. I think it's the motive. Okay. What about compared to schizotypal personality disorder? I think schizotypal personality disorder you can also, they will get into it a little bit, I think, with the definition in a moment, but they, they also don't really seek to be very close to other people. So you can see some seclusion, but in, in a question stem, I think that a schizotypal patient, they would, they would point out maybe their eccentric thinking or their eccentric behaviors. Or I remember a question that I got that was 
the differentiator between schizotypal and another personality disorder was like the clothes that they were wearing. So they were wearing a bright yellow shirt with bright orange shorts with bright red shoes and a whatever color hat. And that was enough to make you think in a question stem like, oh, sorry, <laughs> Dr. Rand. <laughs> Just describe <laughs> Dr. Roundy's outfit. The shoes aren't yellow. <laughs> so so the, um, the way that a person with schizotypal personality disorder might stand out in terms of the way they're clothed as opposed to um, the trust in the relationship again. I think it keeps going back to that trust. trust in the relationship, yes, doesn't I it? Yes, I agree. Uh, avoidant personality. How to differentiate paranoid and avoidant. Mm -hmm. Going back to the motive. Paranoid personality disorder, don't trust others. Avoidant personality disorder, they probably want friends, they want those relationships, but they're nervous or they're anxious about being embarrassed. Can I throw something in here? So I think engagement is important too. So a paranoid person will engage with other people, but think that every interaction that they have is negative or the person has some ulterior motive, whereas an avoidant person won't engage with people. They'll, they'll be more hesitant to do that. And if they do, the fear of the, they'll ruminate over what happened in the engagement mm -hmm. and worry about having been embarrassed or done something shameful. Mm -hmm. As opposed to, that person was trying to screw me over. Okay. I see. Yeah. What about between a paranoid personality disorder and schizophrenia? Hmm. I, I think of, so that I'm getting kind of pulled back to paranoid personality disorder versus paranoid delusions. Um, because I think somebody with schizophrenia can have those paranoid delusions. Um, but I also, I think in a question, somebody with schizophrenia might also experience maybe auditory hallucinations. Negative symptoms, auditory hallucinations, tactile hallucinations. I think it probably comes down to those, uh, t at least two of the above. The two of these are the positive or the negative symptoms. Where you wouldn't necessarily see either the positive symptoms or the negative symptoms in a, in a paranoid personality disorder, you would see distrust in the relationship, Okay, I, I think. So this is, I'm not sure on this, but could functionality also be play, play into it? A person with paranoid personality disorder may be slightly more functional than a person with schizophrenia. Like a person with paranoid personality disorder could keep a job. They can have relationships with people, although it seems like they end up distancing themselves just because they think everyone's out to get them. Whereas a person with schizophrenia struggles to keep a job and to sustain, sustain themselves. I don't know. I, I suspect that there are some differences in the things you're talking about. I'm also aware that here at the state hospital, I see patients who have the most difficulty in maintaining employment and um, we don't always see the patients with schizophrenia who maintain jobs, who the beautiful mind patients, right? Mm -hmm. We only see one section of those patients. It's hard for me to know how many patients with schizophrenia hold down jobs. And uh, somewhat to Spitzer's criteria about functional impairment that we talked about in the first podcast um, in this four-part series, um, if somebody who is having hallucinations and maybe has delusions and some disorganized thinking still holds down a job and maintains relationships with family members, do they have schizophrenia if they are able to do those things? 
I think probably yes, because there's still some functional impairment in achieving the maximal you know, reach of the goals that somebody might have. But again, it, it gets back to maybe anybody that's functionally impaired might have similar outcomes and those that aren't might not meet criteria for illness. Mm -hmm. So so to answer your question, I suspect people with schizophrenia have more difficulty um, finding and maintaining employment, but I would also say that people with paranoid personality disorders will probably leave the jobs they're in because they're worried that their boss is about to fire them anyway, or that their coworkers are laying traps for them and those kinds mm -hmm. of things. So so I, I just don't know. It'd be an interesting question and one worth looking up at some point. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I think that's probably the, the differential we'd need to be aware of with paranoid personality disorder. Um, schizoid personality disorder. Now, Doug, you did a deeper dive on this. Yeah. I mean, I find, find this very interesting just because it seems like it has so many uh, overlaps with other diagnoses, obviously negative symptoms of schizophrenia, autism, um, there's this thing called major depressive di disorder, is that what you're going to say? There's this thing called alexithymia. Alexithymia? Alexithymia. don't recognize your emotions? Yeah, don't, or you don't recognize the emotions of others as well. So, um, and you know, in my opinion, a lot of ambiguity about this, so therefore I find it very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, I'll just go over the criteria real quick, based on the DSM. Um, so this begins in early adulthood. The, this individual will uh, neither desires nor enjoys close relationships, chooses solitary activities, none or little interest in having sexual experiences, takes pleasure in few activities, lacks close friends or confidants, appears indifferent to praise or criticism, shows emotional coldness, detachment, or flattened affectivity. And then it's not attributable to another medical condition, so it's kind of like a rule-out diagnosis. One thing that I find interesting with this is that with all personality disorders, there needs to be some form of functional impairment. But um, if you look at these criteria, and as we talk about schizoid uh, personality disorder, the patients that have this, they, they're okay with not having a lot of friends, and they're happy to just do their own thing. Uh, and another way of saying it is they lack social motivation. And so I find that there's some tension between these two ideas, that there's a functional impairment, um, but at the same time, they're okay with just not being around people and interacting with people a lot. Uh, let me just look at my notes. So where does the social impairment, or where does the impairment come in? Is it that people who write the books say, well, that must be an impairment because they don't act like me? That's what I still don't really understand. I, I think if I have to speculate, um, there could be, so they've been looking at relationships between schizoid personality disorder and suicide and homicide so there may be some sort of unconscious um, impairment or this could just be comorbid diagnoses but there may be some relationship with the schizoid personality disorder causing these things and um, you know the other thing that I've been thinking about is that among all the personality disorders usually the people they're okay with it 
but it's everyone else that is kind of suffering. So antisocial personality disorder, the people, they just, you know, don't care about what other people, other people's feelings or how they hurt other people, right? Disregard for them. Disregard, yeah. yeah. Borderline. Um, personality disorder. Yeah. They lack insight into how their actions are affecting other people as well. I would say with borderline personality disorder, though, there's a lot of distress associated with the anxiety and the difficulty managing those anxious feelings. And the fears of abandonment, those kinds of things are very distressing. Whereas antisocial personality disorder, when you get caught, that's pretty distressing. But that doesn't describe the person who has that condition most of the time, it seems. Yeah. And so it seems like I, I'm just trying to, I've never seen a patient with schizoid personality disorder, and I was going to ask, have, have you ever diagnosed someone or observed a patient? Well, I think this speaks somewhat to what you're asking or what you're saying. If somebody is content with the way they're living, they're not very likely to cross my path. Mm-hmm. So you haven't ever? I, I don't know that I have. If I had, I wouldn't have correctly diagnosed it, I suspect. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Um, let's see, some other stuff that... I thought was pretty interesting. Schizoid was originally corn, coined to describe the prodromal seclusiveness and isolation observed in schizophrenia. So there is some relationship between schizoid personality disorder and schizophrenia. Um, there was, a, I can't remember the exact name of the study, but they showed that patients that had schizoid personality disorder were more likely than the general population to eventually have schizophrenia. So I found that interesting. Um, Another way to describe it that was interesting in terms of comparing it to schizotypal disorder is schizotypal has some of the positive symptoms of schizophrenia, whereas schizoid seems to have some of the negative symptoms of schizophrenia. So that may be a good way of understanding its relationship with schizophrenia. Um, let's see. I want to throw out one thing while you're looking at some of the other points. You have a comment here that twin studies using self-report questionnaires have an estimated heritability for schizoid personality disorder to be about 30%. If you remember from your shelf exam, the heritability in twin studies is somewhere between 40 and 60% uh, for schizophrenia based on those studies. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I did not remember that. Um... Okay, let's see. So I guess we can just go into some of these studies that I've... So I guess with all of this, I got interested in well, what work is being done to better characterize and understand schizoid personality disorder. Um, and so one thing that first came to mind was the relationship between autism and schizoid personality disorder because if you think about it, um, some of the the social isolation is somewhat similar to autism. It, you could definitely, it's a, an obvious comparison, although it's a little bit different. Um, if For purposes of a test question, the difference is in uh, ability versus motivation. So a schizoid personality disorder patient has no social motivation to engage with people. They just don't care. If they really wanted to, they probably could. Whereas someone with autism, um, they lack the social skills to even be able to engage with people. 
do patients with schizoid personality disorder have the social skills to engage? That's a good question. I, From what I read, it seems like they may have them, but it's mostly the motivation. It's just absolutely. I guess maybe we don't know if they have the skills or not, but what we do know is they don't have the desire. I think the other uh, thing that might separate out autism spectrum disorder from schizoid personality disorder, I'm just going to call it SPP from now on just to make it a little <laughs> easier, uh, would be that uh, the stereotyped behaviors, right, and some of the, the, the history of regression in childhood, some of those things wouldn't happen similarly because I think you talked about schizoid personality disorder developing in adulthood. We had that very good podcast, uh, I think two podcasts ago, three podcasts ago, where we talked about autism spectrum disorder and, and the childhood onset of that condition. So that would be another distinguishing factor, I think. Yeah. Quinn, were you going to say something? That was what I was... Oh, yeah. I, I also read that a way to tease out the two was the stereotyped behaviors. Yeah. So... So it's pretty interesting because, as we know, autism, the diagnosis has increased dramatically. I'm sure you guys talked about this on the podcast since the 90s. Bit, yeah. So um, so anyways, this study that I was looking at, they compared high-functioning uh, autistic patients who were able to speak with control patients who had other mental health diagnoses, and they, they had them fill out a survey to screen for... SPD, schizoid personality disorder. And so what they found is that there was no difference uh, between the autistic patients and the control patients in terms of meeting the criteria for schizoid personality disorder. But the patients with autism um, had higher levels of, of meeting like the uh, moderate criteria. So sometimes they experienced the symptoms of schizoid personality disorder or uh, almost always, but not always. So I, I found that interesting. So so what you're saying is absent the stereotype behaviors, yeah. absent the childhood history, if you had somebody come into your clinic uh, saying, hey, I don't, I don't function well with other people, screening tests wouldn't necessarily help you choose between those two conditions. Um, so you're saying, like, am I going to diagnose them with autism versus schizoid personality disorder? Yeah. You wouldn't, it wouldn't be easy to separate those two out without knowing uh, developmental history and stereotype behaviors. No, so that's not quite what I'm saying. So the control, so the people that were no autism and no schizoid personality disorder and the autistic patients both didn't meet, both weren't screened for schizoid personality disorder. So actually, I think... If you do do this test, okay, so they were the same as the control group then. Yeah, they were the okay. same. There was no difference. Okay, good. Yeah, so that means that the this screening test could be used to distinguish between schizoid personality disorder and autism, but there are some some effects or associations between the two where patients with schizophrenia are experiencing the symptoms of schizoid personality disorder at a lower level. And was this the SRS2 and the DIGS? Yes. Okay. And I'm not familiar with the DIGS or the SRS2. So DIGS is a screening tool. I'll have to look up. I forgot what the full name is. But it, it has a screening criteria for many different diagnoses. And they have seven questions that are based around the DSM-5 
criteria for schizoid personality disorder. But the they use a one to five rating system. So zero is like never. Mm-hmm. Five is like all of the time. And so in order to, by this criteria, be considered to have schizoid personality disorder, you have to have all of the time for three of seven of the questions. And only three of 50 patients met that criteria. Zero of the 20 control patients. So there was statistically no difference between those two. Gotcha. Um, So let's see, moving on. I think you have a study on schizoid personality, SPD, and suicide. Yeah. um, So this one, this was just a compilation of a bunch of uh, studies that looked at this. And just to um, summarize, there is some relationship between these two things. Just to uh, rattle off a few of the results of these studies quickly, I don't know the, the details of all of them. Um, schizoid personality disorder was significantly related to non-fatal suicidal behaviors and thoughts. Uh, the presence of SPD symptoms were associated with lifetime suicidality. Pre-morbid symptoms, pre-morbid SPD symptoms emerged as predictors of suicide attempts occurred over the 12 months after um, FEP, which I'm, I'm not sure what FEP is. First episode in psychosis. Oh, yeah. First episode psychosis. So those are just a couple. There's two pages of these different articles, and they're all uh, within the last... Well, let's see. They're, it's about uh, 40 years that this relationship has been studied. And I, st- I still think it's not completely characterized the relationship between suicide and schizoid personality disorder, but there is some relationship, which I think is notable. So it looks like there's some relationship. I don't know how significant that relationship is based on looking at this chart you have here. One of the things that I was going to ask you, and I maybe found the answer, is even though our patients with SPD tend to feel comfortable without social interaction, is social lack of social interaction driving suicidality, or is it a factor? And, and when I'm thinking about this, I look down, and it says loneliness is significantly correlated with suicide intent, which is fascinating to me. Even though it's not sought out, people are content not being around others, there seems to be something about having social interactions that reduces suicidality potentially. Yeah, independent of how you think about it, right? Independent of how you think about it, right? Whether you feel driven to have that social contact or not. So um, other other, it looks like you have an article based on uh, violent crime and homicide based on a study in Greece. Yeah, kind of interesting. Something that I should mention with these is that these studies, I think, if we were to compare them to uh, other studies in medicine, they don't have a ton of patients. Um, so the last one that I, the autism one, that was only 70 patients total. So uh, we probably need to replicate that study to confirm. Um, also with this one, comparing homicide rates in different personality disorders among Greek prisoners, it's 300 subjects, so low uh, sample size, but still interesting. Um, anyways, the short of it was that schizoid personality disorder uh, patients had a 2.86 uh, higher rate of 
homicide and violent crimes compared to control. So even though a patient doesn't have any, doesn't feel any social connection, they perhaps may still feel like committing violent crimes towards people, maybe independent of it. So It's interesting. Or maybe there's something about social norming that reduces that kind of behavior, something along True. the lines of suicidality. I, I do want to um, point out that generally speaking, um, there's a there's this challenge in mental health, right, where um, sometimes people that are advocating for mental health treatment will minimize some of the risks associated with the illnesses for uh, violent crime and so forth. And one of the other studies that does stick out is that our patients are also much more likely to be the victim of crime, whether violent or other types, than, than the general population as well. It seems that this is the, the, the perpetration, which is often focused on, is not the whole story, it seems. Yeah, I agree. There's a lot of um, research that needs to be done in this field, and it seems like it's, it's pretty challenging to design studies. Just based on looking at all of these, there's just not that many people with this diagnosis. I think it was, I, I saw one study that said 1% of the, less than 1% of the population Another one that said three to five percent of the population. So regardless, it's difficult to study. Generally speaking, you'll see uh, numbers of summary that say somewhere between one and five percent of the population has this. Hmm. Yeah, that's kind of the way they usually do that. If you found that range in the studies. Yep. And that's how it's summarized. Uh, other things that you wanted to talk about with regards to um, schizoid personality disorder in the studies that you read. Um. Let's see. I think it's a, a rule out, I already mentioned, it's a rule out diagnosis, um, which seems to be important for um, test taking. If something else seems to fit better, go with that. It's kind of like a last option. Uh, that's pretty much it. All right, so if we're trying to distinguish them between uh, schizoid personality disorder and avoid, avoidant personality disorder, Quinn, how would we do that? A patient with SPD would be secluding just because they don't have any desire for social relationships, whereas a patient with avoidant personality disorder, they, they probably want relationships, but they're anxious about it for whatever reason, if it's ridicule or embarrassment or something like that. What about the anhedonia um, of major depressive disorder? How would you distinguish that from schizoid personality disorder? I believe in a question stem. I'm going to go back to, I guess, the definition of what constitutes a personality disorder. A pervasive pattern, lifelong pattern of behavior. And so with schizoid personality disorder, this anhedonia may be present for years and years and years. And I guess that can happen in major depressive disorder as well. But um, I think in a question stem, Maybe, hopefully. They'd have to kind of draw the line that this person has had these symptoms for six months instead of years and well, years. Well, I think they'd also say, like, they used to love some activity and now they don't, right? Yeah. Whereas with schizoid, it's like, like you're saying, with always the, been SPD, this way. Yeah. Okay. So with SPD, and I wouldn't necessarily say that SPD has anhedonia. I would say something along the lines of SPD has a lack of social interaction. 
and the stems with major depressive disorder would say something along the lines of social interaction decreased, right? That, that this person used to have this behavior and that it changed. But I do like the, the enduring pervasiveness. When you go back to that over and over and over, it's going to help you narrow down into the personality disorders. I also think that it's worth pointing out that you have to have five of the SIGI CAPS criteria, right? You just have to have those five before you can diagnose uh, major depressive disorder. Yes. All right, what about versus um, some of the more psychotic um, conditions like a delusional disorder, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, or major depressive disorder with psychotic symptoms? How would you separate those out from schizoid personality disorder? I don't think that patients with SPD have hallucinations, delusions, disorganized thoughts or speech or behavior. Their, their behavior, I think, is a little bit odd, maybe. And if they interact with other people, maybe they might be, you know, odd or weird or whatever, described by somebody else, but they don't have those... Um, those something that, psychotic that I yes, thought about you. that um, may help to distinguish is the question stem could talk about like the patient is brought in by a family member right and they have these symptoms that suggest schizoid personality disorder they just don't care about being around people and so the fact that they're brought in by someone else suggests that they are fine with how they are and I think that's a way that test takers can used to show this like the, the motivation is not there to yeah. inter engage with people are there any others on our differential that we need to cover for schizoid personality um, let's see think we've got it I think so okay uh, we talked about that one. Difference between this and schizotypal personality disorder. We kind of mentioned that one where schizotypal is going to have the magical thinking um, and they want to engage in social interactions, but because they're just thinking about all of these sort of delusional things, um, it's hard for them to have these uh, relationships, whereas schizoid, they just don't care and they don't even really want to interact with people. Okay. That brings us to the third personality. Tell me about schizotypal personality disorder, the other SPD. Yes, the other SPD is characterized by a pattern of acute discomfort in close relationships, cognitive or perceptual distortions, and eccentricities of behavior. So one thing that I learned about schizotypal personality disorder is that I I wasn't aware that they felt uncomfortable in close relationships, but yeah, just uh, something I learned, I guess. So it sounds like in the differential, the thing that would be most difficult to sort out is the difference uh, or to distinguish between schizotypal personality disorder and avoidant personality disorder. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, let's... I think there would be something in there like, the person for schizotypal, they try, they they try to get close to people, but then they say so many strange things that it kind of pushes people away. Whereas an avoidant is, they don't really make that effort because they're so nervous about how it's going to go. 
I think that makes sense, e even though there is a trace of that anxiety in that description of the overview, a pattern of acute discomfort in close yeah, relationships. But, but I think that it, in addition to the function of the behavior, I'm too afraid to actually have, or, or the kind of the, the motivation, I'm too afraid to try it um, with, with schizotypal. I'm gonna try it, it doesn't feel good, but I wanna try that, I'm uncomfortable in it, and mm -hmm. the magical or unusual thinking pushes people away. Sense. All right, so uh, what are ideas of reference? Ideas of reference. These, These are all are things that I had to look up because they're, they're words and terms that I have heard before, but I have never really delved into it. And ideas of reference. It's one that I didn't look up. Do you know I, I, I know ideas of reference. So that's where things happen to you in your life and you... It's like it's a sign. Like, for example, um, like a leaf falls on your shoulder, and then you think that you need to be like a arborist, or you need to change your life based on events that have no meaning. Essentially, okay. is that is that right? Yeah. So, so I often think about um, ideas of reference as much like you're saying, Doug, with, with simply the idea that some event that's happening that most people wouldn't tie to themselves are now meaningful to that person. It has something to do with them. So it might be you're watching TV and the newscast has something to do about you. You might see somebody down the hallway that flips their hair and that's some sort of message about what you're doing. Those ideas of reference, those things out in the environment have relationship to you. That's how I think about it, which which I think fits yeah. with your diagnosis, yeah. your your description very well. So, question: How does ideas of reference fit in with like delusions? Delusions, but I was also thinking of like spirituality. So, a lot of people, you know, this is me running away from that question. <laughs> okay, interesting question. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's uh, very interesting. How how the brain makes meaning of things is always very interesting, right? And, and uh, one of the things I think we, that I talk about in my lecture about schizophrenia at the beginning of the rotation is that we think a lot of the problems, or that some of the problems in, in schizophrenia is that hasty rush to judgment where, um, where the decision making or the interpretation of an event is, is um, not accurate and the snap decision gets in the way of of some of the decision making. It, it reminds me a little bit about what I read with John Locke's thinking about um, there's rationality potentially, but it's based on faulty assumptions, right? Mm. So I think that's kind of how I think about it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I I don't actually want to touch that uh, topic. <laughs> it's too uh, too heated, but something to think about for sure. So now that we're going to stay away from that topic completely, <laughs> tell me about magical thinking. Magical thinking. And so, no, I don't want any questions from you on this one either. <laughs> <laughs> so magical thinking. Yes, we have superstitiousness, clairvoyance. And clairvoyance is this idea that you can perceive the future. Things like telepathy and having a sixth sense. So these seem to be common in schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. How would you tell the difference between schizophrenia and uh, schizotypal personality disorder then? 
I don't know if I have any thoughts on that. Do you, Doug? Well, I maybe my uh, paradigm for thinking about these things is wrong, but I always go back to the functionality. We already kind of talked about that. That's at least how I've understood it. Schizotypal will be more functional than a schizophrenic, but we were... A patient with schizophrenia, you mean? Uh, excuse me. A patient <laughs> with schizophrenia. Um, so that's how I think about it, but that may be wrong. Yeah, I'm not sure that that's, that's accurate because, again, that, that core definition of any diagnos diagnosis in the DSM requires functional impairment. I, I, I think that... Um, a lot of this seems like psychosis. Um, the unusual perceptual experiences like body illusions, somebody sitting next to you, artificial limbs. I, I don't know what you mean by that. Tell me that. It was something that, yeah, I, I looked up. I had to read it online. Um, okay, maybe, yeah, maybe these, these patients, they feel like they're sitting in a room. They might be alone. They're not seeing somebody, but they feel like somebody is sitting next to them. Or they're lying in bed um, trying to fall asleep at night and they feel like their body is or, maybe levitating in their Oh, bed. I thought it was that they have an artificial limb, like a third arm. The way I understand it is that maybe their arm is just not part of their body. Like it's, oh, like okay. it's somebody else's. Or maybe somebody else, I don't know if this is too far, that somebody else is controlling it. Or hmm. they just feel like it's not part of them is how I understood it. Part of their body, but not part of them. Interesting. So I, I also am aware that our patients with schizophrenia um, can have that unusual dressing pattern, right? The colors. Mm -hmm. I think you mentioned that with schizotypal, not schizoid, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, so again, I have a tougher time separating this out from schizophrenia. What I don't see here are negative symptoms. And I think that magical thinking might be different than uh, hallucinations, delusions, halluci um, and so forth. Even though it seems like those kinds of things do bleed into the very frank psychosis that I see here at, at the state hospital. I don't think I'm very good at diagnosing these personality disorders. I would, in fact, I would say I'm probably very bad at it. So I would struggle to make the distinction here. So you, have you ever diagnosed any of these personality disorders? I don't know that I have. Oh, this is interesting. This is good stuff. I, I think I've seen patients who have been diagnosed with these personality disorders and um, sort of been of the opinion, wait a minute, they have positive symptoms, they have negative symptoms. Mm -hmm. And, and so I, I think one of the things that I wondered if it would come out of this podcast was some of the validity data. How would we reliably identify a patient who has schizoid personality disorder and know that they don't meet criteria for schizophrenia. Yeah, and the other issue with it too is from what I, at least on schizoid personality disorder, there's not a lot of really good treatments for it. And so being able to give the diagnosis doesn't have like a lot of utility for outcomes for the patients. And that may be the same with the other ones. And so, so. that may also play into the amount of that this is diagnosed and how often it's seen. If there's nothing we can do about it, people aren't going to be looking out to diagnosis when other diagnoses, diagnoses may fit better and may you yeah, know, have up a treatment. treatment. Pathway. Yeah. I, I suspect that that's part of why I see schizophrenia more 
then I would see these other conditions is because I, I feel like I see ideas of reference in schizophrenia. I think that does fit. I think I see positive and negative symptoms both where magical thinking seems different than positive and negative symptoms. Hmm. I, I suspect if you get questions on schizotypal personality disorder, you'll actually hear the question stem have something along the lines of magical thinking, brightly dressed, um, uh, they speak metaphorically or interactional use. difficulties with others yes. yeah those kinds of things and with somebody with schizophrenia you're probably not going to be required to diagnose schizophrenia as much as you are uh, manage the condition mm -hmm. I, I think that there's probably a trend in the DSM based questions to have you identify illnesses that don't have treatments and to identify treatments for illnesses that do have treat, uh, treatments. So most of your questions are not going to be, tell me that you can identify schizophrenia. It's going to be, tell me how you would manage uh, the condition of schizophrenia. How, not, can you identify bipolar disorder, but what's your first step in management of bipolar disorder? Well, I think, though, that there are questions like schizoaffective versus schizophrenia. Those, schizophreniform yes. versus schizophrenia. So that's where you may make a test on that. And, and those are the timeline questions that I do yeah. spend a fair amount of time when, when I have uh, raw third-year students, not third-year students who are now in their second or third psychiatry rotation. Right, I, I talk all about timeline um, between uh, like the two weeks for major depressive disorder, the acute um, psychotic disorder, or brief psychotic disorder psychotic. versus schiz schizophreniform disorder that one month and six-month break that, that are involved in that, right? The, the overlap between symptoms, if you have both uh, psychosis and mood symptoms, you might have either uh, schiz, uh, schizophrenia, I'm sorry, you might have bipolar disorder with psychotic features or depressive disorder with psychotic features versus schizoaffective disorder and knowing the overlap of the symptoms in the timeline makes all the difference, right? So those timeline questions, you will see that way. But generally, that's still distinguishing between the nuances and the diagnosis, not like, can you just name the diagnosis, which is, I feel like, would be your schizotypal questions, mm. your schizo schizoid questions, your paranoid personality uh, disorder questions, right? So, so I think that's the way you might think about those types of questions. And I think your differential on, on those questions is going to be um, other things that don't have treatments usually, right? I think yeah. that's going to be where you're going to have your difficulty. At least that's how I would build the questions. Now that you say that and I look back on the questions, that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I think that that is kind of, it seems like that's how they do most of that. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think so. And, and obviously there are a lot of other questions, I th but I think diagnosis questions are going to be, um, they're, they're not going to be PTSD, they're not going to be OCD, they're not going to be major depressive disorder, in, unless you're being tripped up on the five, right? Yes. Yeah, that's, so, so there are, I guess, some caveats to that. But. Um, what do we need to talk about in terms of these three diagnoses that we haven't already covered? I can think of. Yeah. Um, I thought these questions were pretty straightforward. I kind of just, when I approached a question that it seemed like it would be about this, like, I kind of just got a sense of what these patients look like. I didn't use some sort of um, 
systematic approach to answering these questions and at least in the practice questions I got them right so just following like the paranoid consistently worried about relationships schizoid really just doesn't care about being around people very isolating no interest in in sexual interactions over a long period of time and then um, schizotypal is just that kind of strange dressing strange saying strange things but no positive features of schizophrenia and no negative features of schizophrenia that seemed to work well for me to me I, I used the the idea that a patient with schizoid personality disorder was a hermit on a lake and a person with schizotypal personality disorder was a magician on a lake <laughs> living alone on a lake right uh, not not quite a hermit but still isolated and different thinking involved in that and that helped me quite a bit I think remembering the language that was pointed out early on that enduring pattern I think you'll see that as a tip-off as well some sort of some sort of language that tells you this isn't uh, a recent change I think you'll see that as well anything else we need to check in on before we close it down all right uh, final thoughts uh, take home for you Quinn I would just and I almost don't know how to, I guess, organize it into a couple of thoughts. But, yeah, uh, paranoid personality disorder, distrust and suspiciousness. Schizoid personality disorder, the indifferent, loner, and drifter. And schizotypal personality disorder, odd, eccentric, discomfort in close relationships. Yeah. Excellent. Doug? Um, same thing. Everyone pretty much nailed all the main points. The only thing that I'd say is you may not never see this in a career in psychiatry as Dr. Roundy, or may never diagnose it. I've probably seen it and haven't diagnosed it. Yeah. That's a good caveat. So, I don't know, something to think about. Yeah, I, I, I think for me, uh, my take home is after reading the Pritchard article that I talked about in that first podcast and being very intrigued by that, there are clearly some some there's clearly some language that Pritchard uses that seems to speak to some of these nuances in the way we see people right I, he spoke to the idea that this person could function well in society that there might be rationality to their thinking but that there's something um, off about the behavior in terms of how it fits in with the societal norms, right? And I, and I think a lot about that with these three. And if I were to think about societal norms, um, I would think isolation is not a societal norm, right? I would think that magical thinking is not a societal norm. I would think that um, absolute last lack of trust is Kind of a societal norm, but <laughs> not not in every, but not in relationships, right? Right, right. Not in relationships. We tend to trust the people that we're around. Mm -hmm. So, so I think, to me, my take home is, how how does this fit within what might be considered the societal norm? And and again, that's a that's a statement that's loaded with uh, all sorts of. Um, challenges and discussions at this point because societal norm is almost an epithet right almost something that uh, nobody would want to say there is such thing and uh, is that is that one epithet I don't know uh, epithet is like a uh, the way I understand an epithet is that it's like a 
it's it's a negative word or a uh, Google it. See how close I am. Yeah, let's see. I, I That's a cool word. I, I wouldn't call it a swear word, but like. Okay, some, so according to Oxford, it's an adjective or descriptive mm. phrase expressing a quality characteristic of a person or thing mentioned. Um, so old men are often unfairly awarded the epithet dirty. So has feels like a stereotype. A negative stereotype, right? Or a negative, right? I think that's kind of how I was trying to use yeah. it, right? It's an epithet almost to, to say that there's a societal norm. That's that's yeah, okay. That's that's not something that that I think most people would think about, and um, in a in a time when neurodivergent or neurotypical, right? Those are words that are being more and more played about. There's this really strange tension in reading. Uh, like the Pritchard article and thinking about how somebody might fit within societal norms or not, right? So so that's kind of my take home is how I think about that differently and still like how I try to hold these two things in my mind, I guess. Yes. On that note, well done. Great idea. Look forward to part three, um, cluster B, which will be coming up hopefully sometime next week, and then cluster C, which hopefully will get done before you guys take off. Let's do it. Sweet. On that note... Team out. Team out. Team out.